Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Bust and Loose Baseball, hosted by Grant Paulson and Toby Altizer, gives you in-depth analytics and interviews on everything baseball in the nation's capital. Now, here's your host, Grant Paulson and Toby Altizer. This is episode 62 of Boston Loose Baseball, alongside Toby Altizer. I'm Grant Paulson. First, we got to apologize. We didn't get you a pod on our normal schedule this week. That was my fault. I was in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I uh, had myself a fun little trip, but I am back and refreshed. The batteries are recharged, and we wanted to tape while I was uh, on the road with the wife, but didn't work out. So we are getting this podcast for you. We'll still get you two this week. Toby, how are you? Doing good. I'm not going to let you just take all the credit for that. I was uh, gone as well, so we we're both traveling, so we'll try to get you more regular pods uh, in the next coming weeks, but this week, sorry about that, but we'll get you regular content going forward, but it's good to be back. We're both back here, so good to be back talking Nats baseball, and good win for the Nationals last night. Yeah, very good win, which we can get into. I, I will say from my trip, uh, real quick, I, I nerded out a little bit baseball-wise, so uh, I went to Winston-Salem for the NSMA uh, Broadcaster and, and Journalist Awards, National Sports Media Association. And one of the perks of being on the trip in, in Winston-Salem where they had these awards was we got to take a tour of Wake Forest. And they were showing us the football and the basketball facilities at the university. And uh, I had asked, and, and we got to go over to the baseball facility. Of course, they were the number one team in the country. Uh, Rhett Lauder, who was pitching against Paul Skeens last week. We talked about one of the most iconic pitching matchups in College World Series history, was the second-best pitcher in the country this year, probably. Behind LSU's Paul Skeens, he's going to go in the top 10, maybe in the top five. He was the best pitcher on the number one pitching staff in America. Uh, not coincidentally, number one staff in America, number one team, as I said, for much of the country. But a couple of, of notes from that trip. Number one, you guys know if you follow college baseball already, Wake Forest Ballpark, Toby, is unbelievably hitter friendly. Like they have players up and down their lineup with 20 plus home runs. Uh, they've got a guy in Brock Wilkin who's going to be taken in the first round or sandwich round who's got 30 bombs. I think they have a couple 30 homer bats. It is 310 down the left field line at the foul pole and 300 down the right field line at the foul pole. I was standing at home plate and it looked like a glorified, like Little League World Series kind of ballpark. Uh, everything's turf. There's no dirt or, or grass like anywhere at all. Uh, it's an interesting facility and it's really pretty, but I say all that to tell you what Rhett Lauder and that pitching staff did is that much more amazing. 
And it's not really a surprise. They are considered at Wake Forest to be the number one analytical pitching team in the country. They have what is called a pitching lab on campus. And I got to go in and tour their pitching lab. And it was eye-opening. Uh, you know, everything from the TrackMan devices and the data to the Edgetronic cameras. Um, they've got, you know, these cameras and lights and things set up all around the roof, the facility of this pitching lab. They've got the biomechanics plates in front of uh, the pitching mound where you land so that they can measure uh, your weight distribution and your extension. And I mean, everything that is available technologically to pitchers and and, uh, you know, the most advanced pitching labs, driveline or wherever else in the country, they have that at Wake Forest. And you see guys like Rhett Louder and some of these pitchers going on these meteoric rises in college now because of that facility. And I think their staff is analytically minded. But on top of that, they've got this professor who I guess is super into the numbers and analytics and things who teaches courses in that, who they've added to their staff that has helped them out with this lab. So it was just breathtaking. And as a baseball nerd, I'd be remiss if I didn't just point out what a cool experience, how amazing it was to see their lab. And it's it's firsthand. Like the results, the, the proof is in the pudding for me, Toby. This team has done this thing where they have a better lab than everyone else and better information than everyone else. And despite being the number one offense in America because they play in the maybe the most hitter-friendly ballpark in America, they are also the number one pitching staff in the country. And I, I, if I can make this a Nats point for a second on a Nats podcast, like if you build it, they will come. You need to believe in the numbers. You need to care about the numbers. You need to have the information and the technology. You need to, this one's tough. Is my mic on? Spend money on things that, you know, may not be seen by the public and the results will follow. But I, I just, anyway, I wanted to start that way. It was a really cool experience. Well, and to your point, I covered the Brewers for a little time when I was out in Milwaukee, and there was an article written. The Brewers have a similar type of thing that they do, I believe, out in their Arizona complex. And Corbin Burns went from the worst pitcher in baseball to a Cy Young winner simply because they figured out his cutter didn't have the effective axis. It wasn't the best spin rate on it. And so they figured out a way to tweak it a little bit with those high-speed cameras, whether it's cocking the wrist or whatever the case may be. And so that's the things you can do with those things. And I know sometimes it seems a little nerdy and old folks are like, well, you can do so much stuff with pitching labs like that, where you're working on just little, little things of how to tweak pitches, making sure that it's the most efficient way to throw a curveball, working on the most efficient way to throw a slider so it breaks at the right time, so it breaks sharp. It's really cool to see that they're doing that, and obviously it's been very effective, like you said, when you got the best pitching staff in the country. Something's obviously going right there. Yeah, and I, I just love seeing the teams that make the commitment financially and otherwise get rewarded for it. But without further ado, let's get into the Washington Nationals. I never like to focus a lot on one game because I'm aware of the fact that people listen to the pod kind of at varying times. Uh, but the Nationals did take two of three from the Padres, and they have subsequently here split with the Mariners. They're getting ready for a rubber match day game, 410 East time start later today in Seattle. So we can get into that. But a couple things of note. How about the Padres seemingly coming apart at the seams here? I mean, they Washington leaves San Diego after taking a series. You've got Xander Bogarts talking about them, you know, meaning the Nationals. Being, they're the Nationals. We can't lose series to them, which was quite interesting. Then a big report came out about how they're on the brink of basically clubhouse turmoil, where, where everybody's boiling over and it's a lot of egos and people are mad at each other. 
two teams in very different places, right? I mean, the Padres trade for Soto, give up all their prospects. The Nats are in the rebuild and they're young and it seems like guys get along while they're you know, not winning and they're worse than the Padres, but there's no expectations. I just found that juxtaposition with Washington there based on them being the team that essentially uh, gave the, the Padres Juan Soto for some minor league players. I found that really interesting this week. Well, and it's funny because it's almost an exact opposite of what happened when they were here in D.C. Obviously, you remember when Soto comes back and all the hoopla that surrounded that, but it seemed like Soto really took off during that series. It seemed like the Padres looked like they were going to get things turned around here in D.C., and then just a couple of weeks later, the Nationals go out to San Diego and win the series against them, and all of a sudden, it seems like San Diego is just falling apart, and it's crazy because they have so much talent there. And you understand if you're not playing good baseball, you're not winning, it would get frustrating when you got guys like Tati, Soto, Bogarts, all those guys on the same team and you still cannot produce victories. It's got to be frustrating. I mean, they're spending so much money. You traded so much of your farm system to the Nationals to the point that you look down there. They got some guys. It's not like they don't have any good prospects left. But at this point, it's not like they have a lot of guys. So these Dudes that are up there need to produce, and they're not doing it. So I get the frustration, but I think it's kind of funny at the same point. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if they're going to trade Soto at this deadline. I mean, that's not really being talked about yet, but it will be soon if they don't start winning. Here's what I mean. They're 37-42. and 42. They're seven and a half out of a wild card spot. So forget the division where they're 10 and a half back and in fourth place. Diamondbacks and Giants are better than them, stunningly. And the Dodgers kind of anticipated. Uh, better than them as well. And, and all of those teams are at least you know, seven and a half games better than them. But they are not even close to the wild card where you're not only chasing three teams in your division, but you are also then chasing uh, either Cincinnati or Milwaukee. Uh, you're even basically with the Cubs. So there's technically five teams you're climbing over. Then you're behind Miami and Philadelphia. So, I mean, you're talking about almost 10 teams, you know, in the wild card mix with you that you're going to be scratching and clawing with. Do you really, if you're AJ Preller, want to risk going all in to, to make the wild card this year, thinking maybe when you get to the playoffs, you can go on a run or retooling? And if, and if you want to add to that system, we went through the same thing here last year. You know what the best way to get a lot for Juan Soto is? Give up an extra postseason of him. So is it two postseasons of Soto going into his contract year next year or one? Uh, something they're going to have to contend with and deal with. But that's a, a discussion maybe for another podcast on another coast. Uh, to the Nationals we go. So last night, big 11-inning win, three-run 11th. All kinds of storylines to take out of this game, including Jordan Weems getting out of the bases loaded jam, which was awesome. He's been really good. Two innings scoreless, three strikeouts, pitching around two walks. But I think we got to start with Lane Thomas. Two more hits and two runs. He drove in a pair. Obviously, dramatic extra inning swing for him. Thomas is average for the year, 299. His OPS, 863. He has been tremendous. 14 home runs, seven stolen bases, seven outfield assists. He's been a top 10 outfielder, maybe. Uh, not maybe. I should take that back. He's been a top 10 outfielder in the National League. I mean, if you look at his rankings, he's mostly sixth or higher in almost all categories. So maybe he's been top eight, top seven, something like that. Uh, so let's just start with the fact you and I have bantied a few times about who should be the Nats all-star on this podcast over the course of the last five, six weeks. I think that conversation's over, isn't it? 
Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt. I think at this point, it's pretty obvious that Lane Thomas is the guy. want to give you a couple of numbers on him. Since May 1st, this is what he's done in 52 games. He's had 227 plate appearances, 14 homers, 33 RBIs, 17 doubles, a 316 batting average, a 613 slug, 357 on base. So for a 970 OPS, if we wow. were to calculate some of these numbers out over 162 games, it'd be 53 doubles, 40 homers, or 44 homers, and 100 RBIs. So, I mean, the, the pace he's been on the last two months has been spectacular. He's an and MVP. It really has been. And, and this is why I say, and we've you know alluded to it a little bit as trade pieces as well, you have to get something for him. If you're really going to move him, this isn't one of those things where you just sell him while he's high and hope that you get something decent in return, but you just have to move on. I think he has found something. And the reason I think that is multiple times you heard from him, you heard from Davey Martinez, that they kind of tweaked his approach a little bit at the plate. And he was looking fastball, adjust to off-speed, and use the talent to adjust to the off-speed, but hunt the fastball. And really, since the month of May, when we talked about April, he hadn't hit a home run in a while, and it was it was kind of slow for him out of the gates. Ever since the calendar turned over to May, he's been one of the best players in the National League. And so I think he has found something that allows him to do that. Is he going to continue to play at this pace? Probably not. That's not been his you know career so far. But at the same point, I think he has found something that has allowed him to turn the corner. And if you look at it, a guy that's now 27 years old, he's got a couple more years of control. I think if you're looking at this from a Nationals perspective, you almost have to look at finding a way to get a couple extra years out of him as opposed to trading him, in my opinion, because you've got guys coming up eventually in James Wood, Robert Hassel, hopefully Elijah Green. But why not have a proven guy? If you're able to maybe sign him for a couple extra years after the arbitration years and maybe keep him around here for four or five years into his early to mid 30s, this is a guy that I think you can depend on to be at worst, a fourth outfielder for you when you're contending again. And if not, he could be your everyday right fielder as well. Yeah, it's very possible. I think what they've got to do is determine, is this an aberration and an anomaly? Or is this what Lane Thomas is? And and, and I don't mean specifically how he's playing right now, okay? Because he's not going to hit 300 for the rest of his career, and he's not going to have an 860 OPS. But if he's 280 with a 800 OPS... That's very different than his career, where he's a 250 hitter with a 760 OPS. And to your point, if he has found something, and that happens, by the way, he's 27. So you know, he's a little older than is typically the case, I would say, when you find out that someone's maybe better than you projected. But it's not like he played a lot of games. He played 34 games in 2019, 18 games in 2020. Then he finally got a legitimate real chance in 2021. Uh, and that was mostly because he got traded to the Nationals. But this is his second full season in the major leagues. And let's not forget, even though he wasn't particularly great last year, he wasn't this Lane Thomas. He did hit 17 homers. He did steal almost 10 bases. And he was the organizational player of the year, meaning he was the best player on a bad big league team. So here's where I'm at on Lane Thomas. I have been on the, the team of you probably have to flip this guy because his value is the highest that it's going to be. But I think what you said is correct. You can take him out of the category now of you have to move him to get the most back possible, whatever the most is. So like, you know, six weeks ago, I would have told you if someone offers you their number 11 prospect for Lane Thomas or whatever, you have to do that. Whatever you get, the best offer, you, you take it. 
now, and I don't think this is authentic, but I think because of the control, it, it, I hope people hear me correctly. It's not that I think he's going to be the last two months Lane Thomas for the rest of his career, but you have multi-years of control of a player whose floor is really good defender, really good runner, good foot speed, can hit at the top of the order, has a little bit of power. Like Even if all of the, to- the numbers regress, like the starter kit's pretty good. And if he's your third best outfielder on a championship-level team, I think you're fine as he hits 15 to 20 home runs and a 260 average or something like that, e- even at kind of what he's been in his career already before this breakout. So I wouldn't put him in the same category as, say, like Jamer Candelario, who we'll get into in a second who's playing his butt off, who's got an 800 OPS, who's having an awesome season. But to me, Jamer Candelario is still a player. I would flip and get whatever I can for. And the difference is, Jamer Candelario is a free agent at the end of the year. Now, you signed him for one year and $5 million. It's a huge win. Kudos to Rizzo and his staff. They don't get enough credit for when they hit on guys like this. People love to count up all the flyers they take that don't work. You're going to bat a very low average when you sign guys like Jamer Candelario on a bad team for a year. But this one has. But Candelario is not Lane Thomas in the sense of if there was two years left on Candelario and he was 27, maybe you say, you know what? He could help you. But he's going to be 30. He's on a contract year. So to me, you make every call you can and you take whatever you can get, whatever the best offer for Candelario is. That's where he goes. And you get somebody's 16th best prospect or whatever. You know, you get some A-ball arm that you think might turn into something. But with Lane Thomas, to your point, I I have come around now to this idea based on the control, less based on just the current production, but believing a little bit in the game. You know, he does everything. I I think that you can get away with not trading him. And and if if in the offseason you end up wanting to flip him or something, okay. But you've got multiple years ahead for a guy who he's a 93rd percentile sprint speed guy. He's 95th percentile arm strength, right? I mean, if if you look at it that way, like forget the offensive numbers that may or may not be replicable. He's just a complete baseball player. So I think I'm on team unless I get something really nice back. And, And the market is such, by the way, Tobe, that that might happen. Like maybe a team gives you, you know, their second best pitching prospect or something they really like who's in double A with good numbers and on the verge of a futures game or something. And and maybe you go, okay, well, two years of Lane Thomas for a potential, you know, fourth starter in the big leagues. We'll do that. And I would do that. But it's the, the point is now, you in the same way that when I traded Trey Turner with control, I needed something. When I'm trading a Scherzer or someone who's in the, the final year of a deal, Jan Gomes, Josh Harris, and any of those guys, what are you giving me? What are the best offers? Take that one. Because otherwise, the guy's walking for nothing. Yeah, I mean, if this were six weeks ago, to your point, if if we're talking about a trade, I would have probably been in the same camp as you as, A, just get what you can. If it's you know some mid-level prospect pitcher, fine. If it's a, a couple guys that are lower ranked, fine. At this point, you have to get someone pretty good. And otherwise, you keep them around because, you know, this is a team that over the last couple of years hasn't spent. Maybe that'll change if they're in contention again. But he seems to be a guy to me that could be a cost-effective veteran down the road when hopefully the Nationals are contending again. A guy that you can keep around for not too, too much money, but can give you production for that reasonable price. You know, whether he's the fourth outfielder, 
He's your everyday right fielder, whatever the case may be down the line. You know, like you said, I don't expect him to continue to be a 300 hitter, 950 OPS guy like he's been over the last two months. I don't think that's him, but he's been pretty streaky throughout his career. And we've seen stretches before, not this long, but stretches before where you're like, wow, this guy's really good. And then you've seen the down stretches. So it'll be interesting to see the rest of the year whether he has one of those down stretches, whether he's truly found something, maybe he can avoid the down spells more than more so than keep up the hot streaks. But e- either way, I think that at this point with Lane Thomas, he's kind of showed you what he is. And even if he takes a step back and goes back to more of what he was before, I'd be totally fine if that's a guy that you wanted to depend on as your fourth outfielder at best, your everyday right fielder going forward with this organization. Other guy that I just mentioned, Jamer Candelario, who's in the, the trade combo, I think, that we have to have. Uh, real quick on Candelario. So he doubled as part of a two-hit game in Seattle in uh, game two of that series. He's obviously got a home run on, on this trip as well. Jamer's been rolling, by the way. He's got two homers in his last seven. He's hitting 320 with an OPS over 1,000 in that time. Uh, over his last 15 games, he's hitting 310 with an OPS of almost 1,000. Uh, and three home runs. And over his last 30 games, he's uh, got an OPS well over 800. And for the season, he's at 805. So forget his 260 average. Like, he's hit for so much power that he has been a really valuable offensive player. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he's been terrific defensively as well. Um, I-, I heard Bob give a stat on the telecast yesterday. He is the fastest national in terms of games, I believe, to ever have 10 homers and 25 doubles in a season. And that's not completely random. Remember, one of the appeals to him when they signed him, they sent out a press release, and they talked about how he'd led the league in doubles two years ago in the American League. It is part of his game. So I say all that to say this is a huge win, one year, five million bucks. I've loved Jamer, and I really don't hate the idea of having him around in the future. If that happens, though, I'd be bringing him back this offseason because I think he is, like to me, this is the perfect example of a player that you you brought in, you struck gold, you move him and you get something for your system back. Like there's no reason you can't get a player or two uh, that would fit into your top 30, you know, for, for Jamer Candelario in, in a fairly weak market. I mean, someone needs a, needs a little thump. Uh, he can provide it. This is a switch hitter, which is very valuable, who's playing above average defense in the infield, who who can hit doubles and home runs. Like there's no reason they can't get something helpful back for Jamer Candelario, in my opinion. Yeah, I feel like they're definitely going to move on from him. And it's nothing that, you know, it's a perfect spot for the Nationals. This is something that Mike Rizzo's done over the last couple of seasons. You sign a guy, short-term deal, hope you strike gold, and then you move him. And that's what they've done with Jamer Candelario. And if you're a team that's contending and you have issues at third base defensively, he can help you out. His bat, I think, is a solid one. He's had some hot and cold stretches, but he's been dependable enough at third base as a hitter. And then defensively, like I said, he's been so good. When the Nationals brought him in, defense wasn't a part of any of this. You know, it was going to be the doubles. It was going to be maybe some power and basically all his bat. What he's been able to do defensively this year, I think, has been an aberration. And I think that's something that could add to a team looking to maybe improve their infield defense Jamer Candelario, I think, is going to net them something much better than they probably expected because he's he's been a really good player for them this year. There was a report that they're possibly going to get something for Ildemaro Vargas as well. Uh, I think that was John Paul Morosi of MLB Network who said teams are sniffing around on him. I mean, he obviously is a trade chip. He plays short. 
He's got a little bit of pop off the bench. He just hasn't played enough, and and frankly, he's gone cold at the plate right now. That I don't think they'll they'll get a lot for him. Um, but that's a you know whatever you get is kind of a plus situation. But we'll be tracking some of the storylines closer to the trade deadline uh, as we go here on Boston Loose Baseball. Uh, one other player I did want to talk about really quickly, and this is not a trade conversation, but this was specific to the game against the Mariners. Jake Irvin. Uh, again, threw the ball really well. Uh, he gave up the two-run homer in the first inning on a mistake, and that ball was crushed, by the way. But after that, he gave up just one run in his start, and frankly, he should have had a quality start. Should have been six innings, three runs, because uh, there was a ball four call on a strike three in the sixth inning that would have gotten him out of the frame. Uh, the Nats, I saw a graphic, are the, the team that benefits the least from umpiring this year, and it's not close. Like, they have been screwed. Statistically, this is not an opinion more than any other team, and it's by far uh, this season on bad calls, balls, and strikes. So if it feels like as a Nats fan you're watching and you're like, man, that was not a good call, uh, it's because you are thinking that more than any other fan and fan base this year statistically. And, it, again, it's not particularly close. But Jake Irvin, the 26-year-old righty, he was getting kicked around. I mean, he was just having a rough go of it. I know on the pot a few weeks ago you and I were saying, you know, if something doesn't change coming out of his little break that they gave him when they skipped the start and, and gave him 11 days off, you know, he, he might not have a spot in the rotation for that much longer. Well, since then, he's come back and he's made three starts, five innings, one run against the Marlins, six innings, one run against the uh, Diamondbacks, and then five and two-thirds, three runs yesterday against Seattle. So he has been a, a much more efficient, much better pitcher, and he just kind of looks like the guy when he first got called up throwing the the good breaking ball, getting swings and misses, getting ahead and counts, not walking a lot of guys. He's been pitching really well. Yeah, I'm excited to see what he can continue to do. Like you said, he was struggling there for a little bit. They gave him that skip in the rotation, gave him a little bit of time off, and all of a sudden he's kind of regained that form that he had early when he got called up. And now you're starting to see him enough that it's not one of those things where, oh, well, it's the first time seeing him and there's not a whole lot of book on him. Like He's pitched enough now that teams kind of understand what his strengths and weaknesses are, and they're going to try to exploit it as much as possible. And obviously they're going to continue to get the book the more and more he pitches, but they're starting to adjust to what he's got and he's still pitching well. So I'd love to see what he continues to do. The question I'd have for you, Grant, is what do you think long-term he is? Is he a guy that could stick in the rotation? Is he someone that maybe projects as a bullpen arm i mean right now the way he's pitching i think he's a fine fifth starter fourth starter for this baseball team but you know theoretically three and four years down the road when hopefully this team's contending again is he sticking in the rotation or is he maybe a bullpen piece so i've always kind of seen him as a back of the rotation arm as a ceiling right i i think there's a potential that he ends up in the bullpen but my answer on what he becomes has more to do with everyone else in the system than him i guess so, in other words, like Cade Cavalli has a higher ceiling. Um, there's no comparison between the two, but Cavalli is a starter, first round pick for a reason. Uh, I would say Cole Henry, depending on health, much higher ceiling would be a mid rotation type starter. Uh, Jackson Rutledge, who just got promoted to AAA, who we're going to have on the podcast on our next episode, by the way, later this week. So you'll want to grab that. Like that's a guy, first round pick. I think he has a higher ceiling. So, it depends. Like, do those guys pan out? Does Cavalli stay healthy? Does Henry stay healthy? Does Rutledge get to the big leagues? Um, and, and even Rutledge, I've always kind of liked as a wipeout reliever with two pitches. Uh, he's ended up throwing well enough that it looks like he could be a you know number four, number five type starter and, and have some success. He's a better version of what we've seen Irvin do in the big leagues, in my opinion. 
But I guess my point is, I think on a bad team, he could be a back-of-the-rotation starter. I think he would have to improve still a good bit for me to feel like he'd be a back-end starter on a like a division title Nationals team. Uh, and that's why I kind of still project him a little more to the bullpen. Maybe a tweener type uh, who can make some spot starts. But he's so big, I think he could eat some innings for you and kind of wear it occasionally. Um, this stuff is not bad. I mean, you've seen that. His fastball touching 96 his last couple starts. The curveball's really good. Uh, he's flashed a decent changeup. So I, I would say he, he has to get better for me to say he's a he's a member of the rotation. Um, and I just assume that they're going to have more and, and better options. Uh, by the by, the way, at some point you're going to spend ideally on pitching again as well. So it's not just all these guys we name, or if you draft schemes or something like that. Um, you know, eventually you're going to. I don't know, actually go out and like drop some money on someone who, who makes starts. Uh, but I think if, if you look at like their system, you know, uh, Jake Bennett, I, I, I think three years from now has a better chance to be in the rotation. Rutledge, Henry, uh, Cavalli, like all those guys. So I, I would say he ends up probably in the pen uh, most likely.